Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. Now, today I'm going to be talking about dogs. We all know that there was a big boom in puppy sales during lockdown and that the pandemic puppy became a bit of a cliche, didn't it? Now we're all going back to work. These dogs are being left home alone more often than not. So the post-pandemic dog's life can potentially be very lonely. And as a dog owner myself, I love my dog, I love my dog, I want to know why it is that we turn to dogs to bring us comfort in difficult times. Now we're leaving them alone such a lot, is it going to affect them? And this is quite brutal, why should we care? Melissa, my producer's here for a chat. Hello, matey. Hi, Tony, you just said I love my dog, I love my dog. Tell us about your dog. My dog is called Holly Berry. Uh, She was called Holly. She's a rescue dog. And there was already a Holly at the RSPCA derby when my Holly came in. So to distinguish her from the other Holly, she became known as Holly Berry. Bit of a joke there. Because uh, you're thinking about Halle Berry? Exactly. Oh, very good. And very we assumed good. that when we got home, we would change her name to something else. But she just, she is Holly Berry. She always was and always will be. And so it may be quite obvious that she has made an enormous contribution to my life over the last few years. And I wanted to find out more about her and her kind. Breed, colour, give us some details. Give me a, I want, paint a picture. I want to imagine her in my head. She's a Westie. She's a little Westie, West Highland Terrier. She's small like a terrier and she's got curly hair and they have two coats. So she actually looks heavier than she actually is. And she's curious and affectionate, but so willful. Uh, willful Westie is a is a common phrase and it's very charming. If she was a huge dog, it might not be quite so much fun. But for me, it's great. She sounds good. Can we have a bring your dogs to the podcast recording next time, please? I'd really like to meet her. She's here now. 
No, she isn't, but you can say that on radio. I'm lucky enough to be sharing this podcast with two dog nerds. Well, no, that's sort of a bit unfair. They're dog professors, really. One is Clive Wynn from the Arizona State University, who is also the director of the Canine Science Collaboratory, and most importantly for me, is the author of Dog is Love. And we also have with us Professor Ingrid Teig from the University of Denver, who wrote a fantastic book called Animal Companions about animals in the 18th century. So my first question to Clive, which I guess is the, the million dollar question, do you have a dog? If so, what kind? And on a scale of one to 10, how much do you love it? Well, so yes, Tony, I have a dog and my dog's name is Zephos. And she's restlessly pacing around in the background because this is the time when we usually go O-U-T for a W-A-L-K. And I love her. Absolutely. She's just a mutt. She's a black mixed breed dog of no particular pedigree. And she's not especially smart, I have to say. I know some people have smart dogs. Mine, I don't have. I'm not blessed with a smart dog. But I love her to pieces. And I'm utterly and completely convinced that she loves me. That's her dominant trait that, uh, that she shares with the others of her kind, that she is just very trusting, very outgoing, very, very engaging. And she solicits from people. It's, it's a hard-hearted person who could resist her love, who could resist reciprocating this affection that shines out of every pore in her little body. Very interesting that you, in, in this slightly derogatory way, said she's just a mutt. My dog, my current dog, who is called Holly Berry, which I do think is the best name ever for a, a dog. We got her from the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in, in Derby. We got her picture online. We thought she was a mutt. We had her DNA tested. She, for three generations, has been a purebred Westie, a West Highland Terrier. So I've got a mutt, but she's also a posh dog as well. Ingrid, tell us about your dog if you have one. I do not have a dog. It is, uh, it is extremely embarrassing to me that I do not have a dog having spent all this time thinking and writing about dogs. But uh, the plan is shortly to acquire one. I bet if you do, the first thing that will happen is that you'll love her very much. Have people always felt the same thing about dogs or has it changed over history? For a very long time, dogs were seen, like other animals, as being primarily servants to humans or meat. But for Western Europeans at least, you didn't eat your dogs, but they were supposed to be workers for you and you could care for them, but you weren't supposed to love them the way that you loved other humans because that wasn't their role in society. Their role in society was to serve you and to work for you. And the thing that I think is really fascinating is the way in which we've transformed that view of dogs so that to say now that dog is just a worker would be seen as not fully understanding dogs and perhaps itself actually even a sign of, of, of cruelty um, or a lack of human connection and emotion with animals that we all should have. There was kind of a philosophy, wasn't there, that, that dogs were kind of much lower down the pecking order and weren't really alive in the, in the same sort of way that we're alive. And in a way, I kind of feel that that's still there somewhere, certainly around things like uh, animal experimentation. The idea that we have been experimenting on beagles until really quite recently is, to me, is a kind of obscenity, but it, it seemed to have some uh, philosophical backing. Yes. So um, for most of European history, the question was whether or not animals had souls, right? The thing that makes humans human is that we have souls and we have reason. 
um, according to most thinkers until fairly recently, which of course is rooted in Christian thinking, right? That we, we will be saved and that is the unique gift from God to humans. In the 17th century, a philosopher named René Descartes came up with an idea that we often refer to as the idea of the animal automaton. But he basically claimed that humans, unlike all other beings on earth, had as a result of their soul, a particular kind of spark of life that meant that we could feel things in a way that was, for him, real, and that for all other animals was not. And so he said, basically, if you harm an animal or hurt an animal, the sound that you hear is not a cry of real pain. The sound is just a reflexive response, the same way that you could program a robot to yelp when you poked it. And so he said, because of this, there was this radical distinction between humans and animals, and you really couldn't harm an animal. You had no moral responsibility toward an animal the way that you do toward humans. And a lot of scientists use that way of thinking as a way of rationalizing experimentation upon animals, especially vivisection, which is experimentation upon live animals, where you could actually operate on an animal while it was still alive. And the argument was, well, they don't really feel anything. They don't feel real pain. And so what looks like animal suffering isn't real suffering. And almost immediately after that idea emerged, people said, well, that's clearly nonsense because I look at my dog and it yelps when I kick it. And that is clearly an animal in pain, right? Um, it's a counterintuitive argument in a lot of ways, but one that was very powerful for a long time. I certainly follow up with you, Ingrid, that uh, the attitude that we enjoy in the West towards our dogs today and the extent to which we allow ourselves to indulge our affections for dogs is unprecedented in human history. But I would say that there is evidence going back at least 8,000 years to hunter-gatherers who buried some of their dogs with as much uh, ritual and as rich grave goods as they buried any of the members of their own species, which we don't know what the people at that time were thinking, but it strongly hints that there was a powerful emotional bond between these people and their dogs. And all through history, even though it's nothing like as common as it has become in first world countries today, but nonetheless, throughout history, you see these evidences of people caring greatly for their dogs. There are Roman gravestones with uh, inscriptions where people people say, I love this dog. There's a famous one from, I think, Tunisia, which says, you know, this dog was a daughter to me. And so, so people have felt powerful bonds of affection towards their dogs. I don't think back to the very beginning of dogs. My personal belief is that the origin of dogs, you know, all of our dogs are descended from wolves. And I don't think that in those very earliest phases, 15 to 20,000 years ago, when there were just certain wolves hanging around the camp, that the wolves became more tolerant of the people. I suspect that people didn't feel much towards those wolves because people don't care much about the animals that live on rubbish dumps nowadays. But certainly when dogs are being buried on their own with full ritual honors, as they were by 8,000 years ago, uh, I think it's clear that at least some people felt this powerful emotional connection. You said that you don't think that when wolves were initially coming up to the campfire in order to get some warmth, that people would have felt the same about them. Now, last year, I went up fairly close to the North Pole and I, I met a family of wolves. And although I was terrified by them, 
a great love surged through me because they were so incredibly beautiful and they were so incredibly smart. I was really terrified. The, the leader of the pack put his paws on my shoulders and I thought, this is it. This is the end of everything. And then he gave me that gorgeous kind of lick. And I'd always imagined that wolves would smell of death and he didn't. It was just like a puppy lick. And then when I saw the little ones, they were so cute. It seems to me that you're being a little bit reductive there, that actually it's just as likely that the first time that people around the campfire saw a little puppy wolf, they would have said, oh, you're such a beautiful darling boy. <laughs> well, they might. They might have, Tony. And I've, I've had, I haven't been to the North Pole, but I've been to Indiana, which is cold enough for a guy from the Isle of Wight. And uh, and I've had the exact same experience. I've had a wolf lick me on the on the face, and it is it is a deeply engaging and moving experience. And it shows that there is at least some potential there for people to have emotional re- relationships with wolves, as indeed people have emotional relationships with all sorts of kinds. Of, what was that crazy guy in Alaska who made friends with the bears, although they did end up eating him? You know, these kinds of things go on. But it takes more than just one person and one animal to to create domestication. The thing is, Tony, there's nothing that people and wolves have to gain from each other. We don't need each other the way people and dogs need each other. So wolves are very effective hunters on their own. And our ancestors back in the Ice Age were very effective hunters on their own as well. There was no motivation, no pressure to form a guild, a bi-species, a two-species guild between our ancestors and wolves. I just don't see that happening. I think that the earlier stage of domestication was quite accidental. Okay, but what do you think did happen? How do we know that dogs started out as wolves? Well, so that that is simply genetic fact, right? So, so geneticists with their massive expensive machines can go through the DNA, the genetic material of any animal they want to, and they can identify who is descended from whom. They can find out if we're really the child of our fathers, and they can find out what animals any other species is descended from. So we know, you know, 50 plus years ago, before the genetic technology was available, there was controversy. Conrad Lorenz, uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, he thought maybe some dogs were descended from wolves, but other dogs might have been descended from jackals or whatever. And we now know that that's completely wrong, that every single one of our dogs, from the smallest Chihuahua to the greatest Great Dane, they're all descended from wolves. So that, that is an ambiguous fact. What what's still greatly argued over is exactly when did that happen and by what process did that take place? But I think that the most likely process is simply that at certain points back in the last ice age, latest theories say perhaps at the last glacial maximum about 20,000 years ago when things were exceptionally difficult and most of the Earth's surface was actually completely uninhabitable. And so people and other animals found themselves thrown together in these relatively small zones, which they call refugia, refuges, and people and other animals got pushed closer together. And the, the most likely theory, I think, is that certain groups of wolves started scavenging on the leftovers that people had. So we then started liking them because they were dogs, or we got to like the wolves a little bit, and when the wolves realised that we were liking them, they got a bit cuter and a bit doggier. How do you think that might have happened? So the thing to think about, if you visit a, a trash dump in some part of the world where there are animals scavenging on the trash dump, walk towards them. 
And at a certain point, they run away. They run away. They're scared of us. They have every reason to be scared of us. At some point, the animals scavenging on the trash dump run away. This has been done systematically and scientifically in Sweden, up there in the north, where there are wolves scavenging on their city rubbish dumps. And if you do this with the wolves in Sweden, the wolves run away when you are 200 meters off. That limits how much a wolf can get from a human trash dump because people are always coming out to the trash dump, so the wolves are always having to run away. So there's a limit to how much they can get. Dogs scavenging on trash dumps will let you get much, much closer. A study done in Ethiopia in Africa, the dogs allowed people to appear within five meters. And so what that means is that the dogs can get a lot more out of a human trash dump than a wolf can. And so that clearly is in the interest of the animals that became dogs, that they changed, their behavior changed, and their mentality changed so that they become much more tolerant of humans nearby them. Okay, they put up with us because they got more stuff when we were around, but why did we put up with them? Initially, Tony, we may not have had much choice in the matter. Initially, we may not have liked it that there were wolves and bears and goodness knows what on our on our village trash dumps. We may not have been happy about that. But at some point, and this would have happened very slowly so that no one person probably ever noticed, but at some point, probably the the fact that there were these sort of trying to make friends with us wolfy doggy things on our trash dumps may have appeared preferable to people than having real wolfy wolves on the trash dumps. And these doggy wolves on the trash dumps, you know, they became your neighbors. You know, do you love your neighbors? Well, maybe you do, but probably you don't, right? Probably your neighbors are just people that are okay. But hey, if they make a noise when strangers appear, yeah, well, that's a bit useful. That's a bit useful. I think I think for the first so many thousand years, the functionality, the benefits to people of having doggy, wolfy things hanging around the edges of camp was kind of pretty questionable. And occasionally they did eat one of your children. So it was just as well that you had half a dozen of them. But yeah, I don't think initially that there was a lot of benefit to people. That came later, I think. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guests this week, the Dog Professors, Clive Wynn and Ingrid Taig. Ingrid, we've talked a lot about dogs in prehistoric times, and I know that later on we're going to be talking about thoroughbreds and the Kennel Club and what happened in times closer to where we were. But between those two periods is history. And 
it strikes me as someone who came to dogs very late that they're hardly there. It's a bit like 30-odd years ago, we suddenly started to realise that women weren't in history. Oh, blimey, where have the women been all this time? And we had to kind of rewrite history to include women. And the same is, is true of people from ethnic minorities. Oh, where are they? Oh, we're going to have to rewrite history again. But isn't that true to some extent as far as animals in general and dogs in particular, that they have given us so much and we have interacted with them so much? And yet those narratives have hardly appeared in the record. I think that's absolutely true. And I love the comparison that you make with the ways in which other groups in human history have been discovered as being worthy topics for historical study. Because I think it does track a question about what is it that we think is important. Historians write history about things that they consider to be important and significant. And so for a long time, women, the subject of my first book, were seen as unimportant. Um, And so why write history about people who didn't matter? And the same thing goes for people from underrepresented groups and all kinds of other areas where we suddenly thought, oh, maybe poor people have something interesting to say about history. And recently, I think that's been happening with animals. And for a number of different reasons, I think part of that has to do with the ways that we think about animals, even fairly recently, has changed. So I think in the United States, we saw something of a turning point with Hurricane Katrina in 2005. This terrible hurricane that hit New Orleans, um, people were being evacuated in mass numbers. And a crisis emerged almost immediately because people wanted to bring their pets and especially their dogs with them as they were evacuating. And those animals were not being allowed onto the buses and into the shelters that were taking people out of this area. And it caused an enormous Uh, sort of public crisis around what does it mean to have a pet and what do we owe to our dogs in particular and this feeling that dogs are part of our family. And all of those things, I think, then combine as we look back in history, the question that really drives me is how did we shift from this idea of thinking about animals primarily as workers or food to thinking about them so much as companions and members of our family? So what do you reckon caused that shift? So I think that shift occurred in the 18th century because of a number of social changes that happened in that period. And here I'm talking specifically about Britain and, to a lesser extent, uh, North America, where, for one thing, people just stopped starving. And once people stop starving, that means that they start to be able to spend their money and resources on things other than just food and trying to keep themselves alive. And that has a couple of different effects. One is that you can start to afford to keep animals that don't contribute. You can feed them even though they won't feed you or work for you. But the other big shift that happens as people get wealthier is actually change in human domestic space. So for a very long time, the vast majority of people lived in extremely small spaces. And if they had any animals, they literally shared the physical space of their home with all of their animals. What happens in the early 18th century is as people get richer, you start to see changes in domestic space. So the first thing that happens is people move their animals out of their home space and into a different area. And once you have done that, then you can start to mark certain animals as special by bringing them back into the home. And those are the animals that become pets. So one of the things that you see people start to talk about is indoor dogs versus outdoor dogs. 
So the outdoor dogs are the working dogs, the hunting dogs, the guard dogs. The indoor dogs are the companion animals that you live with. Those are the ones that are the pets who become part of the family. I so love that idea. It never occurred to me before that in the medieval, you were completely surrounded by these animals. And then once you started to get an income, you got rid of all these animals. And then you went, ah, I want an animal in my house. (laughs) Once you have resources to care for an animal that you don't need any other benefit from besides an emotional one. That's what opens up the way of thinking about dogs that we now think of them primarily in terms of their benefit being emotional and, um, and companionship. That seems pretty plausible, but I've seen loads of pictures from the Renaissance onwards uh, of people holding little dogs and having adoring looks in their eyes and the dog having an adoring look back. There must have been some sense of how wonderful pets are around at that time. Sure, and I would never make the case that people didn't have pets before the 18th century. And um, and again, as Clive said, right, we have evidence of thousands of years of people caring for and loving their animals and especially dogs. What I think changes the degree to which it becomes socially acceptable to have this kind of intense emotional relationship with your dog and socially acceptable on a large scale. So if you think about those Renaissance portraits that you're talking about, those are rich people. They are members of the elite. And sure, it was fine if you're a rich person to have you know, fancy clothes and to spend a lot of money on food that you don't even really eat and to have a dog that you love and that is utterly useless and does nothing for you because you have money to burn and you get to spend money on whatever you feel like spending it on. Luxury is part of aristocratic life. What I think changes in the 18th century is pet keeping becomes, first of all, just much more widespread. So many, many more people have dogs as pets because they can afford to. And what that changes then is the notion of whether or not this is something that is sort of just a sinful extravagance or something that is an understandable, important component of human life. So I think that by the 19th century, you get this idea that a family without a dog, in some senses, isn't a family, right? And that is a radical change from even 100 years before then, when sure, you would have a dog that worked, and that was fine. Or if you were really rich and lazy, you might have a dog that was just a pet. But that was sort of if not sinful, certainly at least a wasteful luxury. And I think we, we see a shift over the course of a century from dogs being luxuries to dogs being, in some sense, necessities and members of our family. So far, Clive, we've been talking about this entity called dogs. But in fact, nowadays, we tend to talk about our poodle or our spaniel or our springer or whatever. One of the most noticeable things about dogs is how many different kinds there are. Why is that? Is there something kind of plastic about dogs which enables them to change or be changed much more effectively than other animals? I don't think so, Tony. I think that we could have done this with any animal we'd wanted to. I mean, we could have 200 breeds of squirrel if we had really felt it was worthwhile. Any animal that's diverse across the surface of the planet and wolves, before we humans started wiping them out, wolves were all the way throughout the northern hemisphere from the Arctic Circle down to the equator. Any animal that's that widely distributed will exist in a number of different forms, right? We see that in our own species. People come in different colors of skin, different levels of hair on their head and the other parts of their bodies. And 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 wolves, you know, I mean, if you've met with wolves up by the Arctic Circle, Tony, then you've seen really big, 
really big, very, very furry animals. I have seen wolves in Israel, which is the last place where you can still see the subspecies of wolf we call the Arab wolf. And the Arab wolf is actually no bigger than a golden retriever. So going back thousands of years, probably going back to to the origins of dogs, there were different shapes and forms. And then much more recently, the 18th, 19th centuries, people really started to understand that you could create different biological forms if you controlled who mated with whom. And if you got really tough on this and actually forced, you know, sons to mate with their mothers and so on. So you, if you practiced really intense inbreeding, you could create different forms. The modern breed phenomenon and this belief that every dog, you know, I call my dog a mutt, which is slightly disparaging. You're supposed to say she's a mixed breed. Well, she's not a mixed breed. She's a purebred mutt. She's descended from animals that were never caught up in the pure breed production process. Only a tiny fraction of dogs were ever captured in the 19th century and turned into these breeds, which are now so very, very inbred to their great detriment. What 19th century ideas about breed talk about is bloodline and the particular physical appearance of the dog. Not an interest in what the dog does, but an interest in what the dog looks like, and an increasing attempt to limit the definition of particular kinds of dogs by precisely that notion of bloodline. So Tony, when you said, you know, my Westie is uh, three generations of purebred Westie, right? And the pride in your voice when you said that, that is something that emerges really only with the creation of the Kennel Club in 1873. It's entirely made up. All of these breeds that we now talk about as breeds with these long and distinguished bloodlines, none of them can get traced back before the middle of the 19th century. And all of them are based on this very peculiar notion that a particular look to a dog is its most defining feature. And it is something that is entirely based in race and class. It is not a coincidence that the 19th century, which is obsessed with notions of keeping classes in their place and where we see modern racism emerging in particularly terrible ways, that this is the same time that dog breeds emerge as a concept. It is entirely intentional on the part of the people who are doing this to keep those notions of class and race alive in the way that we talk about our dogs. It's been a fascinating discussion, but there is one huge question that I want to ask you both before we finish. Do dogs really love us? Because you could argue, couldn't you, that actually they're onto a pretty good thing and as long as they learn to look at us with their little winsome faces and to put their paw up when they're not getting sufficient attention and to bark cutely when they haven't been fed for a few hours, well, it's going to kind of look like love, but it's going to deliver pretty well for them. So we have all sorts of scientific evidence now that our dogs really love us. We see it in studies that are done where dogs have been trained to lie perfectly still in MRI brain scanners, and we see patterns of activity in their brains when they're reminded that their beloved human is nearby that show how rewarding they find the presence of their human. 
we find it in studies of the hormones in dogs' bodies. And there are, there's a hormone called oxytocin, which spikes in the bodies of two individuals who are deeply in love with each other and look lovingly into each other's eyes. And studies out of Japan show that this happens in dogs with their people, just as it happens with people who are in love with each other. And of course, there's just behavior. I mean, you're entitled to trust the evidence of your own experience around your dog. I mean, when I come home, and I don't think I'm unique in this, I live with a wife and a child and, when I come, and a dog. And when I come home and I say, hi, I'm home, you know, if I'm lucky, my wife might grunt from wherever she is. And my son is unlikely to, you know, it's unlikely to detect anything. But the dog goes completely crazy. I mean, this is such an important thing in her life that I, the human that she loves, have come home. You're entitled to trust the evidence of your own senses. Your dog really does love you. I think for me, one of the questions that comes out of this, once we accept that our dogs love us, the question then becomes, well, what do we then owe our dogs, right? What is What does it mean once we've gotten to the point of saying that our dogs love us? What does that say about what our relationship with dogs should look like? What does it mean to talk about owning a dog if we're talking about owning a living creature that feels about us the way that we feel about them or about other members of our family? What does it mean to care for a dog, to love a dog? What kinds of treatment should we give a dog if we understand that we have a relationship with that animal the way that we do with other kinds of humans? I thought I had really professionally uh, wound up this conversation, but you've just uh, opened Pandora's box there. I have kind of always assumed that how we feel about dogs now is how we'll feel about them in 250 years' time. But, of course, that's a pretty ahistorical attitude, isn't it? In what kind of ways, Ingrid, do you think our attitude towards dogs may change? So I think one thing will be, I think the language of ownership is probably going to go away. That has already been disappearing. We talk about guardianship. We talk about adoption, um, and in some cases, that is actually legal language that is used by cities and their ordinances um, around dogs. But I think the other issue is going to be then, I think that we might see movements toward thinking about food or exercise or training for dogs that is increasingly trying to understand what is best for the dogs rather than the most efficient way to get dogs to behave in the way that we want them to. I think people will look back on the way that we treat our dogs now with some of the same sense of shock and horror as we might look back at the way that people treated their dogs 250 years ago. Clive? Well, you know, predicting the future. I mean, the trend we've had for the last century from 1900 to 2000 and whatever is that we have moved from using dogs, finding them practically useful, using them as a technology, towards simply relying on them to protect us from loneliness. You know, in 1900, hardly anybody lived on their own. In 2000, you have cities where a majority of people are living on their own. And so we're very dependent on non-human companionship. And so that, I think, has been the, the most recent phase of what dogs have done for us. Where we go next, I mean, that depends on whether current trends continue. On current trends, I think that we will continue to rely more and more on, on our dogs and other pets for the companionship that for some reason we are, we are denying each other as human beings, even before the pandemic. And I think the crucial thing is to, is to recognize dogs' social needs. I mean, we love them for the social benefits that they bring us, for the protection from loneliness that they give us. And yet 
What we love about them is their highly social nature, and yet we're not reciprocating this need. I think the most cruel thing that people routinely do without realizing they're being cruel is just leaving their dogs alone. People go out to work at seven or eight in the morning, and they don't come home until seven or eight in the evening, and they imagine their dog is like their television or some other smart gadget that they have in their house, and that if it's switched off, it's perfectly content. But that's just not true of dogs. Dogs suffer greatly from loneliness. You cannot unplug your dog and leave it for 12 hours or more of a day. It's just what you love about your dog is his highly social nature, and that needs to be indulged and reciprocated. Thank you both very, very much. That was absolutely fascinating. And I'll take away two things. First of all, my dog or the dog that I share a house with does love me. And secondly... If human beings wanted to, we could engineer 200 different breeds of squirrel. That will stay with me for a long time. Professor Clive Wynne, thank you very much. Professor Ingrid Taig, thank you too. And Ingrid, get a dog. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson. And you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my Cunning Cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. And it's a Zinc Media production. 